Hello, my name is Georgia Schaefer-Brown and I'm a student project manager at the Clark Forum for Contemporary Issues at Dickinson College. I had the privilege of working on our event, The Ends of Freedom, Reclaiming America's Lost Promise of Economic Rights. And I'm here today with Professor Mark Paul, a professor of economics at Rutgers University and author of the soon to be released book, The Ends of Freedom, Reclaiming America's Lost Promise of Economic Rights. Welcome, Professor Paul. It's great to be here today. Great to have you. So I was trying to focus the interview a little bit less on the event, but I do want to cover some of your research first. So your book, The Ends of Freedom, discusses the need for sort of a second economic bill of rights. Could you talk a little bit about what that might look like and what rights would be included? Sure. So uh, really excited to chat about this idea. Uh, the book's actually coming out uh, just a few weeks now, May 12th. Uh, so in this book, I essentially um, dig into American history to rethink the very meaning of freedom, which is perhaps the most powerful word in, in the American language and, and really resonates with American people coast to coast, from urban areas to, to rural areas, uh, north to south. And you know, when people are searching for freedom, they're really searching for Jefferson's promise of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And we have the Bill of Rights, which guarantees us our political rights. But as many uh, politicians, theorists, and social movements have fought for since really the founder, founding, going all the way back to the more uh, kind of radical founders like Thomas Paine and Alexander Hamilton, they knew that civil and political rights wasn't enough. They knew that in order to fully realize that promise of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, we also need economic rights. So what does that mean? In 1944, Roosevelt actually first proposed an economic bill of rights. And for him, this was the culmination of the New Deal. It would finally fulfill his promise of freedom from want, which was one of his core four freedoms. And Roosevelt entailed a number of rights, including things like a right to a well-paying job, a right to a house, a right to uh, medical care, a right to social security and unemployment. Uh, and things of this nature to ensure that no American would ever go without. Now, Roosevelt was deeply concerned that some 40 million Americans were still living in poverty and saw this as a fundamental failure of the market to provide enough for each and every American as, as, a, um, as a basic right, um, as, as they are part of our nation. And so economic rights simply say that we should actually put a real floor under the market and ensure that we eradicate poverty once and for all and provide people with you know, not only basic access, but an opportunity to fully realize who and what they have value to be. Thank you, honestly, um, I feel like I've talked a lot about economic rights and like my research and preparation, but it's, for me, it's kind of confusing, so it's nice to have like a very solid definition. And I mean, you did just talk a lot about like historical figures or historical documents regarding economic rights. What what is your argument for like looking at the past moving forward instead of just like focusing on contemporary issues? Sure. So I think I mean, first of all, I think that, you know, the very narrative we have about our nation is a powerful one. But we tend to have a narrative here in America of thinking about freedom in terms of freedom from government. It's all about limited government. The Bill of Rights, for instance, talks about what, uh, you know, what every individual is entitled to and how they can kind of restrain government. Um, and in thinking about you know, history, I think that 
for me, what draws me to it is just the, the power of the narrative and also uncovering these struggles that we've had time and time again in this country. So it's often, you know, we can look at current struggles, for instance, about Medicare for all. And people might say, oh, you know, well, these countries in Scandinavia do it. Or, you know, oh, you know, that, that might be a radical idea or a socialist idea. Um, but in fact, when we just dig into our American history, we see we've been having this conversation about universal health care for almost a century now. And indeed, the original writers of Medicare intended it to be Medicare for what we call today Medicare for all. And so I think uncovering that history is really powerful and, and informative to, to better understand both how we got here and where we should go as a nation. I mean, I think that you know, Americans have a tremendous amount of pride in this country, as they should. And so when we're thinking about the way forward, I think it's important to connect that to our historic struggles and to consider um, you know, what previous thinkers in this country have been, been considering when we're talking about economic rights and, and you know, ensuring everybody has enough. Thank you. Have you faced any backlash or disagreements from other experts in your field regarding this idea of like the second bill of economic rights? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, the book's not out yet, so we'll find out in yeah, a, a find out this summer, perhaps. But I did write a, a piece, a magazine article on this idea back in 2018 for the American Prospect, and I, I did get some pushback then from um, folks in the field. And and you see, most economists do push against a lot of the ideas that I talk about in the book. So one of the ideas I look at is the right to housing, and how would you actually implement that? And so I talk about two things. One is this idea of social housing, which you can think about similar to public housing today, but in this country, our public housing tends to be low quality and exclusively for low-income people. And now those two things are highly correlated, as a matter of fact. Um, indeed, you know, there's this famous quip that poor programs for the poor make poor policies, and I think that that tends to be true. Um, so social housing takes from other countries, like. Um, in this case, uh, Vienna, Austria, where we see high-quality public housing for people across um, the income distribution. The second policy that I look at here is this idea of rent control. Now, economists essentially universally hate rent control, um, but I think that most economists here are actually wrong. And I think that um, you know, if we look at the fight around, say, the minimum wage, which is a similar type of price control as, as is rent control, we see that the empirical evidence shows that, in fact, minimum wage doesn't have the negative effects that traditional economic models and Econ 101 textbooks say they do. And I think increasingly the empirical evidence on rent control is showing the same. So that's an example of a policy I, I propose and, and, and have you know, a tremendous amount of, of faith in that you know, essentially every economist, uh, minus a small handful of us, think is a misguided policy. But I think that in time, the empirical evidence will hopefully bring them around on it. Could you just, for my own understanding as well, kind of rent control, is that just like making sure it doesn't get, it doesn't like skyrocket or what happened in New York during the pandemic when they kept, is that rent control? Sure, so rent control is basically the idea that your cost of rental, uh, of renting an apartment or house can only go up so much every year. So let's say you're paying $2,000 a month um, for you know your apartment and the landlord all of a sudden says, you know what, I'm going to increase your rent to $2,500 a month. For a lot of people, they can't afford that change. And rent control simply says, you know, 
look, you can only increase it by three or four or five percent a year, rather than landlords having free reign to increase it by 20% a year, for instance, as we saw in many instances over the past two years. Um, there's different ways to organize rent control. Often it's, it's um, pegged to the local CPI, which is essentially a local measure of inflation, plus one, two, or three percent. So if local inflation is five percent, maybe a landlord could increase your rent by seven percent that year, um, which is still a large rent increase. So often we have hard caps put in place as well. So um, maybe you know, the maximum increase is say four or five percent a year. But the goal here is to make housing more affordable for renters and provide them with better stability so that we can keep renters in their homes. So if you're increasing, or like for inflation, it has to go up a little bit, right? So it's just like making sure that it's not crazy high. Is that exactly, yeah. Okay. So rather than a landlord being able to jack the rent up 20%, rent control might say mm -hmm. they can only increase it maximum of 5 or 6% in a given year. Okay. So it still allows landlords to increase rent, and it um, you know doesn't really change incentives for building new housing. That's often the concern economists have. But um, you know that this rent control will reduce the incentive for people to build new housing. But we actually don't see that's the case in the empirical data. Okay, thank you for clearing that up. That makes sense. Sure. I'm pro personally, not an economist, but I'm I'm with you on that. So this is kind of a good segue because I want to shift a little bit from sort of what I would guess your talk might be like tonight, and more towards like contemporary issues. So I, I looked through your Twitter because I Googled you as, as we do, and I came across, well, I was to get sort of a general idea of what your views are. Um, I came across a quote of yours saying that we need to focus on making industrial policy sexy again. Yeah. Could you explain what you mean by that? Sure. So, you know, with the rise of neoliberalism, which really started in the 70s in the United States in earnest, we kind of came to this idea that you know the almighty free market is king, and all we need to do is get government out of the way of the private sector, and the private sector, coupled with the market, will fix all of our problems. And it was this really simple and powerful idea. And so you had industrial policy, which is essentially the government to a degree, picking winners and losers and trying to steer the economy in a certain direction. So maybe the case that most people might fam be familiar with is the space race. We did not have a, a you know, large-scale space industry in the U.S. Kennedy decided we were going to send a person to the moon. They dedicated funding, both to the public and private sector. They engaged in what we call procurement policy, which is telling the private sector, if you innovate, if you create this thing, we promise to buy it for you. That's creating markets. Um, they passed new regulations, and they essentially created a whole industry out of whole cloth, right? They created it from nothing because they had this vision that we were going to send a person to the moon and explore space, right? We, I mean, as humans, we're naturally curious. And so that's a, an example of industrial policy. Today, the best example of industrial policy is President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act which is trying to steer the economy. It's using the government hand to steer the economy towards a social mission, in this case, decarbonization. Um, and so, you know, with the rise of neoliberalism, all of that went away. And I think that the government has a fundamental role to play in shaping and directing markets. 
Um, and even under neoliberalism, the government shaped markets. They just shaped them to benefit private actors and not only, uh, rather than to, you know, think democratically about what our social goals are and then push markets in those directions. And so, you know, industrial policy, I think, is, is simply kind of trying to take the reins back and bring some of the economy back into democratic control for us to think about what are we working towards as an economy collectively. Um, and then in turn, what are the policies that can help guide us in that direction? Would that involve like the objectives of the government or the system as a whole would have to have like a major shift or are there like things in the government that just should be funded more that would then emerge? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So so are we doing new things or are we just doubling down on existing yeah, things? Yeah. yeah. So, so both. So okay. first of all, one example is, you know, uh, if we were to really embrace industrial policy, we would substantially increase um, research and development in this country. So the government already spends a tremendous amount of money on research and development, often in the health sector, often in the defense department. So you're recording me right now on a smartphone. Most of the technology in that smartphone came out of um, the defense department um, through government-funded research and development. The internet, right, literally came out of government-funded research and development in the defense department. And so that th these are forms of industrial policy. So we need to do a lot more of that. But we also need to have an idea of where we're going. And this is, I think, what really scared people away from industrial policy a couple, couple decades ago, was they were saying, no, the free market should decide where we're going. And in turn, government saying, well, look, the free market and the profit motive, people's drive to get rich, can't necessarily, necessarily solve many of our most pressing social problems, be they inequality or poverty or the climate crisis. And so government does indeed need to play a more active role in gearing the economy towards, say, green technologies that will help us still live high-quality lives while stripping emissions uh, out of the economy so that we can you know, continue to, to eat our cake while, while benefiting from high-quality, carbon-free goods and services. Interesting. I'm glad you brought up um, the climate crisis as well because I know you were a professor of environmental studies, New College of Florida. Yeah, I was both professor of economic and environmental studies okay. at New College. Okay, so obviously your research has been focused on environmental aspects as well. So how did your time as both an econ and environmental studies professor sort of influence your views as an economist and your research objectives? It's a good question. So, you know, I took a non-traditional path to economics. I actually went to culinary school, I worked in kitchens, uh, and I'm an avid hiker and backpacker. And so my love for the environment and is actually what helped push me into economics in the first place. It was really observing uh, kind of gross degrees of inequality in the kitchen where I'm working in these restaurants that I couldn't afford to eat in myself, nor could my peers working in them. Um, and and my concern over both our food systems and our, our, our natural environment as the climate crisis intensifies. And so really these kind of real world problems that I was observing is what primarily pushed my research in the direction it's in today. And so my time as an environmental studies professor really helped me you know, continue thinking with my students in a collaborative way about you know, how do we tackle this climate crisis. Right? It is the problem of our generation. I, I think you're probably a Gen Z, yeah. right? I'm a millennial, 
Um, nevertheless, you know, we share this one and only planet. There is no planet B, despite people like Elon Musk's best hopes. It just doesn't exist. And so we need to think about how do we sh collectively address this problem. And, you know, climate policy is essentially uh, uh, built into almost all government policy because carbon emissions are everywhere. They're in the food we eat. They're in the uh, uh, car that I drove to get here you know, to give this talk. They're in the chairs we're sitting in that were transported here, likely from abroad. Um, you know, so carbon emissions are in everything. So we really need to think uh, very seriously and very carefully about how to, how to tackle this challenge. And, and that's really what motivates a lot of my work today. Thank you. Thinking about sort of contemporary climate issues, there's been a lot in the news recently about the Willow Project, and I was wondering, is there, if at all, how would you connect that, like the current Willow Project debate to sort of the economic right of Americans or of people living in the U.S.? Sure, sure. So uh, for, for those who might not be familiar, the Willow Project is a large-scale um, planned oil extraction project on the North Slope in Alaska, um, north of the Arctic. And this is a project that unfortunately President Biden just approved, I believe, three weeks ago after promising voters while on the campaign trail, uh, quote, no more drilling, period, 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 end quote. And so here we see President Biden going not only against his campaign promise, but also against the science. So when you look at the peer-reviewed research, it's incredibly clear that not only can we not generate any new extraction of fossil fuels, but we can't even extract the, all of the um, oil, coal, and fossil gas from wells and coal mines currently in production. So we actually need to shut them down before the end of their life cycle. Yet here we have a president who claims to be the, the climate president uh, basically bringing new oil production online, which I find deeply concerning um, and just really works against our shared climate goals. Now. You know, how does this connect to economic rights? One of the economic rights that I have is the right to a clean and healthy environment. A, a stable planet underpins our very existence. It underpins the entire economy. Without a stable planet, we don't have society. We don't have a well-functioning economy. You know, we don't have human flourishing. So I think that these are inextricably linked. And indeed, I think that um, the youth's current fight for a Green New Deal that we've seen in the past few years has been really invigorating and really helped change the conversation about just how serious we need to get on on environmental challenges now you know why did biden uh approve the willow project you know i can't say i had a conversation with him about it so i don't know for sure but you know what do they say they say jobs well the willow project is going to create 300 permanent jobs that is less than one one hundredth of a percent of the employment in the state of alaska so we're really talking about essentially no job creation and if we care about jobs uh, what we should look at is the fact that Every dollar invested in the green economy creates more than twice as many jobs as every dollar in the fossil fuel economy. So if we want to create jobs, we should push that spend into the green economy instead. The second argument they say is because we need the oil. And here too, the facts just don't line up. We have enough oil already um, in production today um, and enough wells already drilled to be able to supply us as we transition away from, from fossil energy. And so I think that this is a, you know, an unfortunate development that I'm hoping will potentially be overturned. Thank you. And thank you for the um, numerical information also, because I think it's easy to take a stance on like the climate crisis and like oil drilling 
a sort of a moral standpoint, but like morals don't necessarily pay the bills for many working class Americans. So I, I appreciate Absolutely. that, you know, economists like you were also thinking about like, like the economy and like creation of more jobs. Well, let me give you one more number while we're at it. According okay. to President Biden's own estimates, taking numbers from both President Biden and ConocoPhillips, who are the developers of the Willow Project, they're the second largest uh, fossil fuel company in, in the United States. They're going to be producing more than $250 million in climate damages per job created. $250 million per job? Yeah, in climate damages, that's right. And so I think we should be pretty concerned uh, you know, with these types of developments and, and ask the fundamental question, are these working towards our, our shared goals of, of job creation and climate stability? And I, I, I think when you look at the data, the, the answer is pretty clear. That's a horrifying statistic, yes. <laughs> but thank you for sharing. So today, shifting a little bit more, um, I saw in the news that it is the first day of a strike at Rutgers University, your university, um, and I would be interested to hear if you're able to talk about it, about sort of your involvement in that, if you are involved, and sort of like what your stance on is, why, and then... Sure obviously, because we're here to talk about your talk, sort of how you would bring that back to the economic right. Yeah. Thank you for asking this. I think it's a really important question. This is one of the largest university strikes in American history, um, and certainly one of, I think, the most important. So I am indeed a faculty member at Rutgers University. However, I am currently on strike, so I'm here today in my own personal capacity, not representing Rutgers. Uh, I believe in, in strong solidarity with our, our entire union, which is over 9,000 workers strong. Um, and if you, you go to social media, you see that there's just been a tremendous outpour of, of workers taking to the streets to demand a, a fair contract to ensure uh, equal pay for equal work and that everybody at Rutgers is paid a fair and living wage. So uh, I am a member of our union. I do believe that our union is bargaining in good faith, and I uh, think it's unfortunate to see that the Rutgers administration uh, is simply not coming to the table to consider what the union demands to create uh, what our own president of Rutgers University calls a beloved community. So we had a, a you know a president of the university, a man named Jonathan Holloway, kind of purports to support this idea that Rutgers should, should create a beloved community. Yet we have many workers earning wages that don't allow them to pay rent, that don't allow them to cover childcare, that don't allow them to put food on the table every day. And I think that that is something that we cannot accept. So we're striking for a number of reasons, including uh, pay raises in line with inflation. We're not even asking for a, a pay raise for faculty. We're just asking to be kept whole, to not take a pay cut. Uh, but more importantly, we're fighting for substantial raises for graduate workers and for um, part-time lecturers um, in order to make sure that they have enough to make ends meet. Uh, Rutgers pays substantially less than many other universities in the Big Ten, which we're a part of, uh, for, for those types of jobs. And so we need to increase our pay fairly across the board um, and by a substantial margin. Uh, the other thing we're fighting for right now is better job security for part-time lecturers. Right now, the university makes them reapply for their job every semester, which is just downright demeaning um, and, and inefficient uh, to, to boot. 
And so when people are worried if they're gonna have a job next semester, not only does that create a lot of individual hardship, but I also think it negatively affects their ability to do their job well. I mean, when you're worried about where your next paycheck's gonna come from, that's hard to perform at the top of your ability. So I think that this is, is really you know, unfortunate behavior by the administration right now, and I'm, I'm optimistic that our union will prevail. Thank you. And I, is it fair to say that this is something that's been building up for a while? Like, I mean, I, strikes just, just don't just like happen in a day. So that's right. Has yeah. it been a couple of years in the making or? So tensions have been building for a few years now, but we've been working for a number of months without a contract. Okay. Uh, there's been over 100 bargaining sessions and often, you know, just at this past Friday, for example, uh, the university's bargaining team simply stood up the union at the bargaining table, which was really unfortunate. Um, and uh, just uh, three weeks ago, the union called for a strike authorization vote and 80% of membership voted, 94% of membership voted to authorize the strike. So this is, you know, kind of resounding support to take to the streets as a last resort. You know, we don't want to be striking. We want to be in the classroom. I'm an educator, but I know that for me to do my job well and for my colleagues to do their job well, we need to change how Rutgers is working today. And we need to make sure that we create that beloved community. And I'm very optimistic to see that uh, today we had many of our students in the streets picketing right alongside faculty and graduate students and postdocs and adjuncts uh, showing their, their solidarity. Oh, well, I wish you the best at Rutgers. If it were closer, maybe I'd be on the picket line, you know. <laughs> Just in the interest of time, I, I'd like to conclude. But sort of as we're concluding, is there anything that you feel is very important that we didn't cover today? No, I think you did a great job uh, asking questions, and I appreciate it. All right, thank you. And once again, on behalf of the Clark Forum, thank you so much for sharing your time. It was really fun. Thank you.